1: The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A., members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.
2: Warren G. Harding takes a brave but unpopular stand. Bill Clinton gets the midterm jitters. Jimmy Carter succeeds by not losing so much. And Chester Arthur talks to James Garfield's ghost. All of this? on our special summer midterm episode of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Okay, a couple of notes. You can reach me. Twitter's a great place, at myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. If you're not on Twitter, go to the website, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and there's contact us. We can get all that good contact information. Also, you can subscribe there to the premium podcast, where for as little as $2 a month, you'll get more episodes. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com Washington is a city of boarding houses, and of all cities which charge extraordinary prices for the very ordinary board, it bears the palm. Every man, woman, and company holding property here expects to feast off the newcomers. During the first few months of a session of Congress, the city plans to make enough to keep itself alive during the entire rest of the year. This from Frank Carpenter, known as Carp, by his friends and readers, the Washington columnist for the Cleveland Leader, about the opening days of a new Congress, of a new party taking over after midterms. Within the past two days, the season of 1882 to 1883 has opened. The hotels are filling up, and scores of strangers are wearing out the soles of their shoes, looking up comfortable quarters. For the winter. The coming season promises to be one of the liveliest, both socially and politically. Nearly every desirable house in the fashionable localities has been rented. New buildings are going up rapidly, but the demand is in far in excess of the supply. The rent for furnished rooms is fully one hundred percent higher than in Cleveland. And some congressmen or politician would gladly pay one hundred dollars a month for them. In my search for living quarters, I saw others at 40 and $50 shabbily furnished and a full mile from the capital. These were without board and so dreary that their occupants would be in danger of suicide from the blues. The hotels are being refitted and repainted. The hotel men say they never saw a brighter outlook at this period of the year. The Ebbett, the Riggs, and the Willard are the homes of politicians and the centers of gossip. Their lobbies and reading rooms are large and filled every night from 5 o'clock until 11 with a crowd of politicians, statesmen, strangers, all jabbering away about the government, society, and public men. All classes and all sorts of characters meet in the Washington Hotel of an evening. Now a newspaper correspondent, his whole frame and interrogation point, comes in, looks over the crowd, glances at the register, and either stops to interview some statesman or rushes away to some other source of news. They've received enough letters inquiring for rooms to have disposed of their whole space, and they predict that more people will be in Washington this winter than ever before. There's little doubt that that's true. It is a new session of Congress with a change of party power. The Democrats have the House, and it will be a long session. The lobbyists have arrived already in swarms. It is a session preceding a national election, and the politicians will be busy keeping their pots boiling. They use plenty of tobacco at these Washington hotels. The floor of an office is often made a general spittoon, where if one dropped a coin, he would want to put a glove on before picking it up. Our national habit of tobacco spitting reigns supreme in these hotels, filled with the westerners. Their marble floors often look as though walnuts had been hauled on them, and the stains left wet on their bright, polished surfaces. Frank Carpenter The time he's describing is after a national midterm election in which the Republican Party currently in power lost seats. In the White House was President Chester Arthur, who, as I'm sure you know, took over after the assassination of James Garfield just a few months into Garfield's presidency and after a long period of attempted recuperation. The issue, on everybody's mind, was civil service reform. How to decide who gets jobs in the federal government, who keeps them, and why. The issue had bubbled up on the assassination of James Garfield by a lunatic who claimed, nonetheless, to be an office seeker. But that issue had been building for some time. The job seeking and the office trading had riled up the public. Business types in the grand old party, the Republican Party, started to turn against this practice. Those in the public service were none too happy about being charged assessments for keeping their jobs. President Arthur was no stranger to that practice. He had been the head collector at the Port of New York. The translation of that into political machine language was he was the head of the party the Republican Party in New York, and the person whose job it was to collect from employees. And that he did. He was removed from his job by President Hayes and replaced, ostensibly, with Theodore Roosevelt Sr., the father of the president. Roosevelt never got to take his seat. He was denied confirmation by the Senate. Now, after a series of strange events, Arthur, who had been fired by Hayes, was now president himself. And in his first address to the nation, spoken not in front of Congress the way that we expect presidents to do that now, but spoken through a very long letter sent to Congress and printed in newspapers. In his first message to Congress, he says, The mysterious exercise of will which is taken from us, the loved and illustrious citizen, who was but lately the head of the nation, we bow in sorrow and submission. He celebrated the surrender of Sitting Bull and still talked about that there were Indians left to conquer who had retreated across to British-owned lands. He was working with the British government on this. He was glowing with praise of the Americans who were representing the nation in the Electrical Exhibition and Congress in Paris, demonstrating the latest 1882 high-tech abroad. He notes about improving relations with Great Britain and Spain, concern about lawlessness on the Mexican border, proud about a new treaty ratified in Peking, and a stalling, unfortunately, of relations in Brazil, but glad about a recent visit to the United States from the King of Hawaii. And then he turned in this... Lengthy letter to that topic that had gripped the nation, civil service reform. No man, he said, should be appointed to an office to which he is unfit. Investigations of any complaints of that should be prompt and thorough. And here, Chet Arthur was on pretty stable ground. Almost everyone agreed with this, except if you read between the lines a little bit, even those who benefit from a spoil system by who's loyal to the machine can still agree with this easy statement. No one should be appointed to which he was unfit. Arthur had been appointed to offices. One, though he was a Republican was even at the behest of Boss Tweed himself, the famous Tammany Hall leader through a negotiation. But yet, Arthur always saw himself and those he worked with as fit for the job. After this pretty basic statement about civil service reform and urging it, Arthur hedges a bit. Noting that how we make civil service reform happen, there are disagreements. It's not beyond debate. For instance, he takes aim at the scheme of competitive examinations that people have proposed. Uh, This is the idea that instead of parties picking people, that people would be chosen by taking the test, and who scores higher is the one who gets the entry-level job. And then leaving promotions to those who are already in the system. This he doesn't like. It might leave in place a separate civil class if we're just promoting from within. An infusion in blood might be beneficial, he said, to the civil service system. Chester Arthur's position was still aligned with the protection of the spoils system. Now, to be clear, this message would shock many who knew Chester Arthur, a stalwart, a stand-patter, a loyal supporter of the Conkling machine in New York. And that Conkling machine was none too happy with his statement here. Yet, he didn't differ too far from the stand-pat position. Competitive exams were the key that stopped the process of the spoil system, All right, If you can apply and score well in the exam, it doesn't matter which party you came from or who you gave money. So he hadn't gotten there yet in this message in December of 1881, shortly after taking over the presidency. The opposition Democrats were making a big issue of civil service reform in the election, but it wasn't just them. There were groups that sprung off across the country. The New York Civil Service Reform Association, the largest among them. The National Reform League of Newport, Rhode Island. Some 32 other groups across the country. Circulating hundreds of thousands of pamphlets. Getting people to write letters to state legislators and congressmen. A key figure here is Senator George Pendleton of Ohio. He had a weaker bill which he was proposing on civil service reform, that, and he was urged by this New York Civil Service Reform Association to adopt their language. Pendleton, now out of power, decided to do just that. And so the Pendleton bill became the strongest bill out there. Throughout the season of 1882, though, despite Pendleton's bill, despite Arthur's message urging some kind of civil service reform, Congress does nothing. This is not going over well. Uh, the North American Review in September 1882 publishes an article which exposes some of the horrible examples of assessments going on. They talk about in New York where a judge from the bench goes to a hotel room and then summons employees of the Postal Service to appear before him along with a clerk. It's like a court, but it's in a hotel room. And the subject is how much the various employees assessed. According to reporting that ended up in the New York Herald and the New York Tribune, some postal employees were saying things like, look, I can only afford this much. I need money for my family. And the judge was saying, no, you must pay this amount or nothing at all. And we could surmise what would happen if one paid nothing at all. And so, after just a few months in office, Chester-Arthur's Republicans now face a first-term midterm. Most of the action happens around November 7th, 1882. That's the big day for voting. But it's not like today. There are some elections that happen early. The results, whenever they happen, are devastating for Republicans. First of all, there's the loss of governorships most prominently in the largest state in the nation, New York, where Arthur had supported the Republican candidate aggressively and now saw him go in defeat and Democrat Grover Cleveland winning that state. This is combined with losses for the governorships in Ohio, in Indiana, in Connecticut. Uh, But probably the largest loss is the governorship of Pennsylvania a very Republican state after the Civil War. Democrats just don't win there. But this 31-year-old lawyer campaigning as an anti-politician machine reformer, his name is Robert Pattison, who has support of independents, fights on the issue of civil service reform, wins the governorship of this Republican state. Is the only Democrat to be elected. He's going to get another term again later, but he's the only person to be elected as a Democrat between the Civil War and the New Deal. He also joins Harold Stetson, elected governor in Minnesota, and Bill Clinton, elected in Arkansas, as the only people to be elected governor at such a young age, 32. But if it was just a few events happening in random states, it might not have been such a bad midterm. The worst part for the Arthur administration and the Republicans was the loss of 62 seats in the House of Representatives. Enough to turn that body against Arthur. And the Senate would be equal, 32-32, and then two independents would decide things. Not a very promising time for the administration. Frank Carpenter again. The opening of Congress yesterday presented the usual scenes of the first day of the session. The House came to order at 11 o'clock and showed about 100 of the chairs vacant. Upon many desks, there were a bouquet of flowers, gifts of admirers of the various lawmakers. The chamber has been put into new clothing, and 1,300 yards of red Brussels carpet, ornamented with blue flowers, covers the floor. The desks have been rearranged and the 325 members of the house now sit in a crescent made of two wedge-shaped rows of desks, running back from the speaker's stand as a center. And at their rear is a barrier of navy blue cloth, hung on a brass railing. The great men rise, tier above tier, posing in their seats in various attitudes, until, in the back row, they can lean their august heads against the blue curtains. Many of the congressmen, especially the new ones, wear an air of great importance. They remind me of the congressman who said, On my first day in the House, I looked around at that magnificent body of men and wondered how in the Dickens I got there. But after I'd been there a few months, I looked around again. Then I wondered how in the Dickens those other fellows got there. The galleries of both House and Senate were filled today, but they thinned rapidly during the droning of the clerks who forwarded through the readings of the President's message. Author's message is
0: variously received here
2: E.L. Godkin of the Saturday Evening Post said, Never has the popular feeling against the demoralizing spoils system been as definite, sincere, and strong as it is now. Never has the demand for abolition of that system been as high. Then, as in now, the president got to blame for the midterms. The Chicago Tribune says, Chester Arthur was the worst beaten man in politics. Brooklyn Republicans said it was a rebuke of the national administration. But Chester Arthur probably had to endure something that a president, I'm not aware of a president, that has had to endure since. And that is a satirical poem that presents the scenario of Arthur at midnight in the White House being visited by the ghost of the late president, James Garfield, after these midterms. Arthur and the Ghost, it was called. The Democrats publicized it, and it was put in newspapers around the country. Within the White House, in his study sat, a portly personage of middle years. His soul seemed wrapped in the affairs of state. His anxious face told some unspoken fears. His lips were pressed, his lofty brow concealed within the hollow of his jeweled hand. His tinted cheek and flashing eye revealed the gathering ire he could not long command. Perfect poetic expression of that presidential post-midterm rage at all those congressional seats going down. But let us continue. I'm skipping across this very long poem a bit. The clock had told the witching midnight hour, When goblins tis said to men appear. Am I not author? he exclaimed. Wherefore, the mighty revolution which is rent, Our grand old party to the core, Let traitors tremble! I am president! But as he spoke, a mocking, hollow sound, Which mumbling, now above, now underground. A strange, sepulchral voice in solemn tone measured the slow and now filled the spacious room. The voice seemed harsh to him unknown. Perchance it issued from some hidden tomb? This, of course, is the voice of... James Garfield at Arthur's hearing. And thus it saith: The die is cast, beware. The ghost of Garfield now tells a terrified midnight Chester Arthur of what he must do. Internal fraud must die the scorpion death, nor seek to revel in its putrid air, nor touch its foul, contaminating breath. Excessive taxes weigh the people down. Vile monopolies curse the land. Damning deeds hath not your party done to remain in the gold vaults of Washington. Oh boy. Now to the midterm. Garfield continues to scold his successor. At length the people have arisen in mass and in their protest has been your defeat. Goes on about various issues. With caution move, mark well I have said, the Garfield voice continues, and remember the 7th of November, nor seek to know the secrets of the deed. Oh, it goes on, this poem, for 100 stanzas, and I, I will spare you that. I go. The dawn appears. Farewell. Remember. So at one point, boss Roscoe Conklin of New York comes into Arthur's office to say, are the telegraphs true? Did we really lose? And yes, and they cry over it. The poem goes somewhere around the 75th stanza, goes into how great the democracy, that's the the way the Democratic Party would have expressed itself, then the democracy is going to be great and save the country. And herein alas, our greatest fears, those public screams, are the nation's brains. What if in diligence they explore these murky waters where our party cruised and cast their anchor near every shore where public confidence has been abused? So goes the story of Arthur and the Ghost, the North American Review again after the election. It is a groundswell of which all surface disturbances are effects, not causes. It has burst the strong bonds withheld together the Republican organization. The results of 1882 were the product of a general belief that our doctrines have fostered serpents' eggs.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances –
2: The capital is a little city in itself, with a population of the busiest, wittiest, and brainiest men of all parts of the nation. Some of its citizens are aristocrats, and some are plebeians. Some are millionaires, others paupers. Some are masters, some servants. The same differences in station to be found in every city are in this miniature city on Capitol Hill. The chief street of this congressional city is the main corridor of the Capitol leading from the house of representatives to the Senate chamber. It is a long street, perhaps 20 feet wide through which the hurrying throngs of anxious people continually pass and repass little shops for the sale of photographs, candies and newspapers are found here and there along this main street. A telegraph office upon it midway between Senate and house daily clicks out of hundreds and thousands of business messages and tens of thousands of words of newspaper dispatches. At the ends of Capitol's main street there are always crowds of lobbyists and politicians. The House of Representatives is the busiest and most important end of the street. Here during the sessions a dozen men of all classes may be seen, each with an anxious look in his eyes and a I want something with I'm afraid to ask. With a, I want something which I'm afraid I can't get expression on his face. Now and then, one will send his card in to some member of Congress. Perhaps the congressman will come out and speak to him. More likely he won't. I have often seen such cards torn to bits and thrown down on the floor of the House or the Senate. One of the anxious men standing by a door looks like an Indian. He wears his black hair long, has prominent cheekbones. Better not say. The House of Representatives could hardly be called a dignified body. As I make my notes, I see a dozen men reading newspapers with their feet on the desks. Of two congressmen standing taking in the aisle, one has his hands in his pockets and his head bobs to emphasize his words. Amos Townsend is sitting with his arms folded, looking into the future. And Pig Iron Kelly of Pennsylvania has dropped his newspaper and is paring his fingernails. (music) Do congressmen smoke during the session? Why, bless you, yes. I have seen ladies grow sick in the galleries from the vile odor of the tobacco that rises from the two-for-five-cent cigars in the mouths of the so-called gentlemen below. The congressmen smoke in their very seats and peer through wreaths of smoke to catch the eyes of members behind them. The light falls softly on the rosewood desks, shows every stain of tobacco juice on the $8 a yard velvet carpet, and plays on the maroon leather of the empty chairs. Many of the Senators are out of their seats, and the light shows such pile of rubbish and torn paper under them as would make a Western Reserve housekeeper wild. The average Senator is by no means as cleanly as a John Bunyan, and his habits of neatness will not bring him near to godliness, at least not during the session. Outside the Capitol at night is a magnificent sight. From its perch and happy. On Capitol Hill, it is visible for miles, looking like some great illuminated temple or banqueting hall. Its hundreds of windows blaze with light, and a spiral flame of burning gas jets runs about its dome. A thousand gas globes light the brighter passages of this city on Capitol Hill. Their mellow light bathes the polished marble with a warm glow. The statues are vivified with it, and one can easily imagine these old statesmen opening up their stony eyes and scowling at the hurrying, undignified throngs. This is demoralizing for the Republican Party because they really think there's a presidential election coming up, they kind of have a placeholder president, and they're feeling not so good about 1884. But it is at this point that something changes. Arthur does something interesting in his next message to Congress after the election. He notes that since his last message, there has been no legislation, no action from Congress. And Arthur says, placing himself as someone who urged civil service reform, placing himself in the center of the Vox Populi, There's been an increase in the interest of the people, apparently without distinction of party in this issue. Then he goes on. A public officer should be free as any other citizen to withhold contributions to a political party. Now, you have to put this in perspective, and there are some newspaper editors who who giggle at this a bit. Uh, In the election just concluded in 1880, it was Arthur himself who was the one writing letters to employees of the public service in the state of New York to contribute, and if they contributed too little, to contribute more. Now he says public workers should be free. So he acknowledges this a little. It has been urged, doubtless without foundation in fact, that contributions have been given by people whose only motive for giving is fear of what might befall them if they don't. Shocked. Shocked that there's gambling in this town. But Arthur, despite where he's come from, grounded well in the machine politics of New York City, he, in the letter, now calls for a bill. And he does something else. Previously, he had made that statement about civil examinations. Now he says he, as president, will accept and support any civil service legislation that is brought to him. Hearty cooperation, he promises, for any measures which are likely to conduce that end. Well, this is enough for Senator George Pendleton to now submit his bill on the day of the message. And now the lame duck Congress, before the new one gets in, eager to gain credit and be, and beat the new Congress to the punch, and, there's a sinister motive here that some of the Republicans who can see themselves losing some jobs, possibly losing the 1884 election now, want to keep their folks protected by the civil service system. You have some rare bipartisan support. The legislation is not complete. It affects 10,000 in a civil service system that has 10 times that number. And the favorite spoil reward of both parties, the postmasters, are not changed at all. It relies on the president to appoint commissioners in order to work. But nonetheless, it is passed overwhelmingly by the House, by the Senate, and Arthur signs it. He does more. Arthur abides. Um, Arthur is sure to appoint three people to the commission, three-person commission, one Democrat, two Republicans, one a personal friend of him. But all are people that the reform movement respects, and that do the job well, and Arthur abides by the recommendations of that commission. It is here that Arthur gets some high marks for his presidency. Pennsylvania Avenue seems like the Milky Way as it cuts through the darkness. The red lights of the streetcars, herdic cabs, and private carriages make one think of the will-o'-wisps of the dismal swamp. In the distance shine the lights of Burlington Heights in Georgetown. And back of the Capitol, one may catch a glimpse of those of Alexandria across the Potomac in Virginia. Sometimes I think that the Capitol is too fine a structure for the men who have rights to seats in its chambers. We have now all the laws we actually need. Well, so writes Frank G. Carpenter. And it gives you the sense of a new Congress coming in, a new party coming in, and the excitement of a post-midterm Congress, something that President Arthur had to face and other presidents will. Today we're going to talk uh, about a few stories about midterms and some where presidents lost seats and a few where presidents didn't, but generally where the result was not terrible for president or the president's party. It's a story of a midterm that was disastrous to the party, but not necessarily for the president. And this can happen, of course, for President Arthur. A couple of other things were going on. He was such a controversial president, the way that he got into office. The previous president's assassination, where the murderer, though a raving lunatic, had actually screamed, Arthur's now president. All of these things. The fact that he represented one of about three factions in the Republican Party that was fighting with themselves. And that he had Bright's disease. And that his health condition had been reported on. He did not confirm it, but it had been reported on prior to the 1884 nomination process. And all of these things were factors in him not getting the nomination. Theodore Roosevelt actually plays a part in Arthur's nomination, not targeting Arthur specifically, but plays a role in him not getting that nomination. That's something we'll, I don't want to give a spoiler alert, that's something that we'll talk about later this year as we do a bit more with Chester Arthur in 2018. First-year midterms, whether they are from an elected president or a president that ends up because of the death or resignation of a, another president, that first-year House election coincides with the beginning of a presidency is rarely good news for presidents. This Of this, we can be clear. Let's go back 100 years and look at each first-term, midterm, including VPs in 2010, lose 63 seats, 2002, gain eight, that's an exception 1994 lose 54 seats 1990 lose 8 seats 1982 1982 lose 26 seats 1978 lose 15 seats 1970 lose 12 seats 1966 lose 47 seats 1962 lose 4 seats 1954 lose 18 seats 1946 lose 54 seats 1934 gain 9 seats 1926 lose 9 seats 1922 lose 76 seats we now stretch back 100 years 14 first term midterm elections 12 of them the party loses seats that's 86 percent of the time the party who's in the white house loses seats a very strong historical indicator there's a variety of explanations for all this that happens that One side has more excitement than the other because one side got more of what it wanted. There's a kind of leftover effect that if you gain so many seats in one election, you're going to lose more. And now a couple things to say about just looking at the past hundred years. There are two elections where the president's party gained seats. There are a few elections where you didn't lose too many. And there are some elections where, like 1882, or we're going to talk about a few others, the midterm didn't turn out being as bad for the president as was reported so all of these kind of things have happened still that overall trend is still present we're going to talk about more about midterms this year and get into the whole more than 200 year history of midterms i'm keeping it to 100 years i'm keeping it as the first term midterms i can tell you that second term midterms are not uh, any, any joy for the president either and there's even less examples of a president's party gaining seats you really have 1998 I can also say that a few elections where the president's party gained seats they were more of perception what made them explosive was the fact that you thought you were going to lose seats because none of them have been particularly large plus 9 plus 8 FDR and George W. Bush plus 9 and plus 8 not huge so you're not. There is no election where there is an overwhelming gain from the president's party in the House. Why do I look at the House? It's a little bit easier to track and a bigger representation of popular will than the Senate. And it's the body that in one snap wave election can change. Whereas the Senate, only one third of that body is going to be up for election in any given year. In the case of 1882, though, Republicans would go on to lose that 1884 election. It was a very close election. You had the the, the last-minute antics in New York City, rum, Romanism, and rebellion and such. Uh, What Chester Arthur's administration clearly did was put Republicans back in the running for an 1884 election that they thought they had certainly lost and where blaine initially was reluctant to even seek the nomination it was so bad
0: we believe the unspeakable trials the immeasurable sacrifices the awakened convictions and the aspiring conscience of humankind must commit the nations of the earth to a new and better relationship it need not be discussed now what motive plunged the world in the war. It need not be inquired whether we asked the Warren
2: G. Harding is one of now three presidents in history to be elected as a sitting senator. He campaigned on normalcy. It was a winning issue in the nineteen twenty election in a country torn by strikes, race riots, rationing, influenza, and war
0: to civilization and peace maintained. No surrender of rights to a world council or its...
2: But not only that, the country also had endured at least two presidents of different parties who asserted their iron will over the country, the Rough Rider and the Professor.
0: only act for America and its of honor. There is sanctity in that right which we will not surrender to any other power on earth. As a
2: senator, nothing annoyed Warren Harding more than when Woodrow Wilson appeared at the U.S. Senate to lobby for tariff reform or to lobby for his League of Nations. As a senator's president, Harding would be different. He could work with these men who so recently he had been in the cloakroom with he was called by the newspapers the most clubbable senator. A president, he said, cannot go in like a gladiator and expect to get anything done. He was to introduce a different type of presidency. That was when he first came to office. By 1922, the second year of his presidency, President Harding was convinced he could not let Congress drive his agenda. He would have to take charge, and the issue that changed his posture from his conservative, perhaps Whiggish version of the presidency, to a more active role in the Wilsonian model, was the issue of veterans' bonuses. After World War I, with vets returning home, the vets and groups that represented them argued that they lost income serving their country. Men who stayed home had put time into their professions and careers and were going up the scale of income while they fought. The American Foreign Legion was formed to represent veterans. Many states created bonus programs. Some might involve a monthly payment of ten to fifteen dollars, others a flat fee for servicemen of a hundred. The American Foreign Legion pushed for a federal bill and boasted that they could influence the votes of five million voters. It was enough in the nineteen twenty election for candidate Warren Harding to agree to bonuses if economic conditions permitted it. In 1921 and 1922, it didn't. This was the grim part of the 1920s, not the happy days and consumer spree of the later part of the decade. Wage controls were lifted just as, whack, hundreds of thousands of young workers entered the workforce, straight from the Navy boats, to compete for the few jobs that were out there. More importantly, perhaps, the bonus bill interfered with the Harding administration's plans, which involved a tax cut, refinancing of loans to foreign governments made during the war, and a surplus. Normalcy. The whole fracas about the bonus bill was troubling, real troubling, because now you had a fissure in this 20s GOP that had just crushed the Democrats in the last election. The American Foreign Legion pushed hard for veterans' bonuses, and they sent word to senators who were up for election. There was no middle ground. But Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, the darling of Wall Street, the darling of bondholders, who had the respect of those in Washington who wanted to see the economy improved, said that the bonus bill would create a large deficit, which certainly would, and would make a tax cut In fact, it was most likely that a tax increase would be needed to pay for such a bonus bill. But the tax increase could come after the election. The bonus bill was coming. Now, under pressure, the Senate reported a bill from the Finance Committee, and it was now on the floor of the Senate. This is where President Harding took everyone by surprise, driving down to the Capitol and speaking on the floor of the Senate. This bill, he said, would eliminate the normalcy that we all campaigned for. It was a menacing attempt, he said, to expend billions. Stunned by the appearance of the executive in their chamber, the Senate sent the bill back to committee. The press delighted in the clubbing man who had made a forceful show. Some senators, though, were not pleased. Pat Harrison, a Democrat of Mississippi, said, If the president has changed his mind about the conduct of executives entering our chamber, he ought to apologize to Mr. Wilson now. The image of Warren Harding appearing before the Senate or lobbying against the bonus bill is not the historical image that we have of a president who did very little. But indeed, by 1922, Harding had decided that he'd better go with the modern style of the presidency, as represented by Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson. I can no longer hold to my pre-election ideals of the aloofness of the executive in regards to the legislative branch, Harding told Friends. The historical Warren Harding, a missing-in-action buffoon, does not match up well. With his answers to letters, for instance, which came in heavy after his opposition to the bonus bill. When one writer asked him to save the veterans coming home, he said, It's better to save the Treasury. Another writer told Harding that the government had the money to pay for the veterans. You have the advantage of me, President Harding wrote back. You are not charged with the authority and responsibility for the government. No one who is in Washington thinks that we can do this without a new tax. In responding to these letters, Harding revealed the old newspaper publisher in him, and perhaps the evidence that he was more engaged in issues than history has told. The American Foreign Legion, though, was not impressed by Harding's forceful show. They targeted senators. There is no middle ground. You cannot respond to pressure from peers, from party, or from the president. The AFL will be watching you. The American Foreign Legion made clear they would support Democrats or Republicans, whoever voted their way. Senator Oscar Keller attempted a middle ground, an inheritance tax on the rich in order to pay for bonuses. And an insurance program was floated. The veterans could get loans instead of direct payments. They could get loans backed by the government. 50% of the loan would be fronted by the bank and the remainder by the government. Andrew Mellon didn't like that idea either. It would still add to the deficit. Sure, it was better than a straight payment. It would be a drain on the treasury, especially if the loans were all taken out at once, which was widely expected as these soldiers needed things now. The government would have to keep reserves to back up those loans. In effect, after meeting with Republicans uh, such as Henry Cabot Lodge, who supported the bonus bills for political reasons, Harding once again acted the part of the strong executive, even with his own party. The type of executive he'd criticized in in his path to the presidency. Not that he liked being Woodrow Wilson or Teddy Roosevelt very much. I am uncomfortable, he told Friends, living in a relationship in which I must threaten a symbolic weapon to drive an accomplishment. Yet he did. He threatened a veto if the senators reported another bonus bill. Harding could blame the constitutional authors for his predicament, who gave the president the billy club he now held. They considered giving the president a greater role in legislative creation to have a council of revision, for instance, run by the president. They could not get that through. So, the president's role is decidedly negative in legislation. He can say no. Try to create by knocking down. And that is indeed what Harding was forced to do when the Senate passed the bill, the revised bill with the insurance program along with the House in September of 1922. The party was split. Lodge and William Borah The Senators who had joined to oppose the League of Nations and who helped fell the Democrats in 1920 were now, just two years later, at opposite ends fighting each other. Lodge was for the bonus bills and Bora against it. On September 19th, Harding vetoed the bill, which triggered another set of angry letters from voters. It's no surprise one letter writer wrote him You always made clear your lack of concern for those who took on the Bosch shrapnel. Harding wrote back. This particular comment must be answered. I have always supported aid for wounded soldiers. I should tell you, however, that there were more claims for shell shock than there were soldiers in all the battles where shelling occurred. You have to respect Harding for responding to individual citizens, though I doubt that his letter helped opinion much. 1922 was not the glorious 20 celebrated with jazz, highballs, and the Charleston. Lindbergh had not made his historic flight yet. The stock market had not accelerated. The pace of demobilization was still being felt. President Harding, even in his first year 1921, was going to Hoboken to see the war dead arrive from France in boats. Britain was trying to get out of the loans that they had taken out with us during the war to get the U.S. to, in a gesture of kindness, annul the loans. We, of course, said no. The economy was still in post-war recession. Railroad workers threatened strike to be broken forcefully when Harding's Attorney General Daugherty got an injunction against the workers, a stronger injunction than Harding or his Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover wanted. In the fictional town of Zenith, Upton Sinclair's character Babbitt was setting the stereotype of the Midwestern small businessman, while F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel would give the decade its name, the Jazz Age. Babe Ruth hit 59 home runs. Jack Dempsey was the world champion. Twenties were beginning. In the South, the conditions that occurred after the Reconstruction continued. In fact, arguably, things got worse. Woodrow Wilson had segregated the federal government, appealing to his base of white Southerners. Harding, in a speech in Birmingham, Alabama, attempted in a subtle way to reverse his predecessor. He said, we cannot go on as we have for half a century, with one side of our country set off from vital contributions to America. Strong words, stronger than any president would utter in 20 and maybe 40 years. Again, Democrat Pat Harrison of Mississippi was not happy. Unfortunate comments, he said, but Harding did more than just those words he pushed for an anti-lynching bill. It passed the House, and there were enough votes in the Senate to pass it outright, but a filibuster began, and not the threat of filibuster like you hear today, a real one where the business of the Senate was tied up for days. Eventually, proponents of the lynching ban had to give up to get business of the Senate done 1922 would also mark the year when Harding was saluted in northern black communities for proposing the lynching ban and supporting it, but criticized for backing down when the filibuster occurred. 1922 would also mark the year that stories would appear in the Denver Post in regards to the transfer of oil licenses from the federal government to some businesses who were directly connected to the Harding administration, a scandal that later would be known as Teapot Dome. Right now, though, It was not a huge factor. Yet, with the economy not improving, with the agitation over the bonus bill, and most importantly, the split in the party that it caused, Democrats would win 75 seats in the House of Representatives. But Republicans would still hold House in 1922, albeit by a narrower margin. There were no Gallup polls in these days, but there were plenty of opinion polls. There were straw polls and newspapers conducted. There were informal polls. There were surveys that presidential aides would would take. And Harding would see several evidences of public opinion that would show him voters blamed Congress, not him, for the election. He was fortified by this and convinced that he should move forward using his executive authority. He set out to lobby for America's involvement in a world court. Having won on the defeat of Wilson's League of Nations, the 20s Republicans were not as isolationist as it is often portrayed in history. They were eager to have some kind of involvement in the world to replace the League of Nations that they had taken down. They didn't want America to be irrelevant. Harding saw the world court as such an opening. His trip west would help secure support for the World Court. But it was during this trip in San Francisco where he'd have a sudden heart attack and die. And thus began the presidency of Calvin Coolidge. The 1922 midterm loss was big. It was lamented in the Republican Party. And it surprised Democrats, who felt swamped by defeats in 1918 and 1920. Yet, it was of no complete strategic importance. Republicans would make gains again in 1924, 1928. And Democrats would not gain anything off their 1922 wins, would not gain the House back until 1930. But there were individual stories coming from 1922 among Democrats. In New York, Al Smith, who had lost his governorship in the swamp of 1920, as Harding carried New York, won back his governorship in 1922. He would hold it again in 1924. His win in the early 20s in what appeared to be a sea of defeat for Democrats would catapult Al Smith to national prominence, especially within the party. And in 1924, he would be a serious candidate for the presidency. In 1928, he'd receive the nomination. In Independence, Missouri, a young man named Harry S. Truman, straight from France, would open a haberdashery in Kansas City. Unfortunately, due to the recessionary times and some poor business planning, his store would fail. Thus, he needed a job at the same time that the local boss of Kansas City, Tom Pendergast, was under pressure to add some honest regular citizens to his political machine. Thus, Harry Truman became the new county commissioner and would begin a political career that would lead him to the White
0: House. Ladies and gentlemen, last night, and again this morning, I spoke with both Republicans and Democrats to congratulate those who won and console those who lost their elections.
2: Pollster Dick Morris was in the office of a Democratic congressman in Connecticut, helping him out with some political consulting, when his pager went off with a call from the White House. It was Bill Clinton, a man who Morris had worked for when he was governor of Arkansas, but now, in 1994, had largely ignored Morris in lieu of other advisors, James Carville, Paul Begala, George Stephanopoulos, other consultants. Morris had also given up on him when Clinton didn't run for president in 1988, like he told Morris he might. Morris gave up on him, said he was a political dead end. He went on to work for Republican candidates and while he was surprised when Clinton ran in 1992 he didn't think he'd win. Now, 2 years into the Clinton presidency that Morris was kicking himself for being out of. He was hearing the words, "We hold for the president." President Clinton came on and dropped all formalities. He asked Morris, "I'm about to invade Haiti. What argument should I use?" Morris thought about it. He knew little about Clinton's reasons for restoring the government of Aristide in Haiti, the democratic government that had been forced out by a military junta. He saw some of it on TV, but he had been more focused on various towns in Connecticut, where his client was trying to win. Dick Morris knew how the former Arkansas governor worked. When he asked for advice, don't dither, don't hedge. You're invading the wrong goddamn island, Morris replied referring to Cuba. And after a bit of banter, it was clear to Morris that he was back in the circle of advisors. Morris would do a poll for Clinton, and there would be several more phone calls before the 1994 midterms. This was odd, as Morris was also advising four different serious Republican candidates, two governors, two senators, in the same year. Yet he couldn't say no to his old client, who was now the president. Their calls would have the same type of character as their first one, Bill Clinton asked him. How do I fight the contract of the Republicans are putting forward? Morris replied, don't fight it. Talk about you and your administration. How do I convince the American people that we created jobs and reduced the deficit, Clinton would ask. Don't, Morris said. They don't believe it. Talk about little accomplishments like family leave. After Bill Clinton came back from a trip to the Middle East, he said, I want to campaign for Democratic candidates try to help them out. Morris said, no. The last thing people want to see is a hamburger-eaten politician out there. They want the president being the president. Go back to the Middle East, he suggested. Indeed, after the Middle East trip worked out well, the Haiti intervention worked out well for the president. Clinton's poll ratings were up, and so were the poll ratings of Democratic contenders in early October. Clinton didn't follow Dick Morris's advice. He would claim that his schedule has booked him in many, many events with a heavy schedule of Democratic candidates across the nation without his knowledge. Morris didn't believe it. And as he went out and campaigned, his poll rating dropped along with the poll rating of Democratic candidates. By early November, Morris saw the signs of the Democrats losing the House and the Senate. Morris was not always right on everything. He would give the wrong advice later in the Clinton presidency, or at least contrary advice to what turned out to be a successful strategy of dealing with the Republicans during the government shutdown. When Dick Morris is not a pundit on TV, and when he's not attacking Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton, in a way that betrays the friendship and client relationship he had with them. When he's just a political consultant, he's pretty good. And as it turned out, Bill Clinton didn't listen to Morris like a sage, but he used his advice to dilute the other advice that he was getting from professionals in the White House. The unheeded advice that Morris gave to Bill Clinton was an attempt to accomplish a real challenge, to stave off a midterm defeat. One that historically is hard to pull off. In fact, in American political history, only a few have. Since the Civil War, we can say it's just been Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and George W. Bush, the only presidents to pull it off and actually gain seats in a first term midterm. Now, John Kennedy and Rutherford B. Hayes can probably be added to the list of presidents who staved off a real midterm defeat. They didn't lose. Anywhere near the number of seats that were expected and the losses were insignificant. And to that list of better than expected midterm results, you could probably add Jimmy Carter's in 1978. In a way, the Constitutional Convention might have set presidents up. House members were to be the closest to the American people, the most responsive to American public opinion, which can change quickly. So what do you do? Have them elected every month? No, that wasn't physically possible. So it decided on every two years, and that hasn't changed. The president, they wanted a little bit farther from that current of public opinion day to day. So they made his term four years. A president, at least now, is elected at the same time. Federal elections are held at the same time. That wasn't always the case through history, but at least since after the Civil War same time as Congress's, and thus, invariably, the reaction to the policies of a president elected in one year gets a referendum in two years. Voters are fickle. Opinions tend to change. Dick Morris joked that he did not need an alarm clock on the day after the 1994 midterm elections. I also
0: called the leaders of the next Congress, Senator Dole and Congressman Gingrich, to tell them after this hard-fought campaign, that we are ready to work together.
2: Clinton called early. You were right, he said. American President's People party, the Democrats, lost the House and Senate. This was made worse by the fact that the Democrats had controlled the House for 40 years, and the Senate since 1986. Clinton put on a good public face. To change the way Washington does business, to make our country work for ordinary citizens again. But he took it personally. More in the loss of congressmen who had helped vote for him on assault weapons, bans, and paid family leave, health care. If only he could do better, maybe he could have staved off the result. There is evidence that he thought that what Dick Morris had told him prior to the midterm was right. Because in the second term midterm that Clinton had, that would be 1998, Clinton eschewed campaigning and decided to go out and work on the Mideast peace process. This decision was made easier by the impeachment process in 1998 to an extent. Many Democratic candidates didn't want Clinton in their district anyway. Too much partisan conflict. Too little reform of Congress. We can debate the reasons for the result in the 1994 midterms. First, we can consider that, to start with, most Americans voted against Clinton in 1992. In Morris's October 1994 poll that he did for Clinton, he found that voters believed the president had not accomplished anything and didn't stand for anything. Clinton was flabbergasted by the result. Hillary was flabbergasted when she heard that result. We've accomplished so much. We've reduced the deficit. We've created jobs. People in the polls simply didn't believe it. Most of them did not think any jobs had been created and did not think the deficit had been reduced. And even more damning, those that did did not give President Clinton any credit for it. Another factor that was clear in 1994 is that poll numbers of Democratic congressional campaigns in October and November rose and fell along with President Clinton's. The voting public had linked them together the president's party and the president. The early years of America saw first term, midterm staves. Presidents avoided defeat in their first term, midterm, with the threat of war with France. A wartime, President John Adams gained three seats for the Federalist Party in 1798. And although John Adams didn't officially consider himself part of any party and didn't think parties were generally a good thing, these were still three congressmen that were going to help him with his agenda. And it was a loss for the opposition Jeffersonian Republicans. Jefferson, in 1802, saw his Democratic supporters grow, mostly because the Congress was handled a bit different then, and the number, the total number of congressional seats now fixed at 435 was not then. That was done in the 19-teens. In 1802, it grew because of the census that was taken, and the population increased out west, which was a rich area for Jefferson's Republican Party. So Jefferson actually increased his party seats during that election. Same thing happened with Madison in his first term, midterm of 1810. Despite the fact that there was an unpopular embargo, Democrats increased seats in Congress. The Federalist Party had also been destroyed and their districts were easy pickings. There was simply no opposition organization. These elections that we're talking about, 1802, 1798, 1810 are also of a very different nature than the type of midterm we have today, where there's one day and there's national focus on that one election. These elections were held in a series of months apart. In fact, as many as a year apart. The 1798 election went into 1799. In some cases, the new Congress actually was open for business before all the seats were elected. 100 years after Jefferson's midterm, America could see its youngest, most forceful president so far. The Rough Rider, hero of the Spanish-American War, best newspaper president in some time, a dream for reporters' copy. He engaged in things that presidents had stayed away from trust-breaking. He negotiated a coal strike. He earned the admiration of conservative and progressive forces of the party. In the first midterm under his leadership, though the opposition Democrats would receive 25 new seats, again because there was a census and there was seats added to the total number in the Congress, Republicans gained seven seats as well and held control of the House with 207 votes to 176. 100 years after that midterm and 200 years after Jefferson's first midterm, A Republican president would, after the greatest terrorist attack on the nation's soil, have a united country. The president had sent troops to Afghanistan and was preparing a force to send to Iraq. He pushed Democrats on a vote to support a war in Iraq and a controversial Patriot Act bill, both issues that would be used against Democrats running in races nationwide. George W. Bush was not as sensitive The political conventional wisdom as many other presidents in history. I don't want to say he just didn't care, but about simple politics that other pundits might be worried about, he didn't blink. And I think it worked for him on some issues, didn't work for him on others. So I doubt that within that Bush White House, there was much thought that, oh, well, there's this historical prediction that you're going to lose the first year midterm. It made a very aggressive strategy going after Democrats. Republicans didn't lose the first term midterm. They actually gained eight seats. In a first term midterm, that was almost unheard of to accomplish that kind of a stave. Stave, by the way, is the plural of staff, an archaic kind of modern English. So picture a charge of cavalry coming at a group of soldiers and So everyone lines up the staffs or pikes, if you will. It's not an easy thing to pull off in war or in politics. In 1934, though, Franklin Roosevelt did it and pulled off what remains the greatest stave. And that is after winning 90 seats for Democrats in 1932, adding to, a House of Representatives that was already controlled by Democrats as a result of special elections in 1930. And those 90 representatives increasing the percentage of liberal and Roosevelt-supporting new dealers in Congress. After all that, in 1932, when he was on the ballot, in two years, he didn't lose seats in his first-year midterm. Voters kept punishing Republicans and elected nine more Democrats to the house, and it was even worse. Republicans actually lost more than nine seats; they lost fourteen seats in the 1934 midterms because they also lost several seats to a progressive party based in Wisconsin, which was founded by Robert LaFollette. Generally, was backing the New Deal programs that FDR put forward. Anyway, after this 1934 midterm, there would be a second New Deal prior to the president's reelection in which Social Security was only one of the programs resulting from it. So we have in 1902, we have in 1934, we have in 2002, three examples of presidential staves. Strategy-wise, it seems hard to read much into, into these. You know, 2002, being preceded by a horrific terrorist attack. 1934, the Great Depression. Yet it is clear executive action seemed to help motivate voters. In 1962, John Kennedy successfully shepherded the nation through a standoff with Russia over missiles in Cuba, in which we came frighteningly close to nuclear war. But as late as October 19th of that year, the midterms would be in November, the crisis was not going well. The Russians were going to go ahead with the missiles and it looked like we might either have to go to war or or back down or do something drastic. None of it was going to look good for the Kennedy administration who had already had the Bay of Pigs failure in Cuba. John Kennedy told his brother Robert, The campaign is over. We've blown it. Our opponents were right on Cuba. But eight days later, when Russian boats, which were going to finish supplying Cuba with missiles, were blockaded and turned around, and Russians began dismantling the missiles that they had on Cuba, it was clear that the United States had won the standoff. It was certainly a positive event for President Kennedy. Kennedy's approval rating, according to a Gallup poll, was at 77%. In the midterms of 1962, Kennedy's party, the Democrats, lost only four seats in the House, much less than even the President had expected in October. Such a result, a loss, but a loss that's better than expected, is also present in at least two midterms, which narrowly can be called staves. In 1878, where the Republicans of Rutherford B. Hayes had lost seats in 1874 under Grant's fumbles lost seats, lost the 1876 election in the popular vote. Democrats still controlled the House, but in 1878 with a Republican president, Rutherford B. Hayes, they lost only four seats, while Hayes's main competitors, the Democrats who controlled the House, lost congressional seats to a new Greenback party. Democrats retained control of the House, but they only did it by forming a coalition with greenbacks and independents in the House, which weakened weaken their control over events, president's leadership in managing the country, managing civil service, managing the money supply, was respected by American voters.
0: Mr. Speaker, two years ago today, we had the first caucus in Iowa. And one year ago tomorrow, I walked from here to the White House to... Take up the duties of President of the United States. I didn't know it then when I walked, but I've been
2: trying to save energy ever since. Even losing 15 House seats was a better-than-expected result for Jimmy Carter in 1978. Given that Democrats controlled the House, and that Jimmy Carter's approval rating in 77 and 78 was certainly slipping, and there was inflation, and the economy was not looking so good. Democrats had expected an even worse result, and Republicans didn't make the kind of dent that they thought they would in those elections. Carter had concluded the successful Camp David Accords between Israel and Egypt in September 1978, and although on the domestic fronts there wasn't many successes to point to, this might have been a factor in voters' decision. So when we look at these presidential staves Cuban Missile Crisis, Camp David, Afghanistan and Iraq, executive leadership shown by FDR, executive leadership shown by Hayes and Theodore Roosevelt. Maybe Dick Morris is right. To get his party more seats, or to avoid the historically predicted disaster in a first term midterm, the president's got to do something. Have a foreign policy meeting. Don't meet with voters in Connecticut or Iowa. Go meet with the leaders of China or Europe, or at the very least, bring in Harry Reid or Mitch McConnell to have a success domestically. It's tempting to think that the results of a midterm are in the president's control. Enough that, all things considered, a president must exert energy somewhere. So, the most helpful thing is probably to get out of the campaign business and accomplish something. Maybe save the fundraising for private events yet despite all this sage campaign wisdom there's another possibility to all of these staves and perceived staves in history it could just be luck yin yang the normal momentum of american public opinion because if we look at these successful first term midterms for presidents and go back 2 years before we see a common pattern the president had no coattails the president didn't pull in a lot of congressmen with them when he came into office. Prior to his 2002 midterm, George W. Bush as a candidate got only a minority, though a close minority, of the popular vote. House candidates got less votes than he, and in the 2000 election, the election for the House of Representatives conducted at the same time, same day as the presidential election, Republicans lost nine seats of their majority in the House. Democrats had been on a bit of a roll. They had gains in 1996, 1998, and now 2000. Not enough to take the House back from Republicans. But it was a slow gain and they were getting close. So George W. Bush's first midterm election in 2002 broke the Democrats' streak. Perhaps they were equaling this out as much as signaling any support for President Bush. In 1876, in a very controversial election, Rutherford B. Hayes became president. Republicans had actually lost the popular vote. Again, Samuel Tilden was the Democratic candidate and had a majority of the popular vote, and he brought in Democratic House members. Republicans lost seats. In 1976, as Democratic candidate Jimmy Carter was winning a fairly narrow election for the presidency, he brought in only one House seat for the Democrats. In a close election of 1960, as Kennedy won narrowly again the popular vote, Democrats in the House lost 20 seats. If the idea of midterms is people are adjusting to perhaps an over-advantage of one party in Washington and saying, let's put a few more folks there to watch them, maybe. Maybe the president's powerless to avoid the whole thing no matter what his actions are. Maybe it's just a natural political cycle. reminder about the premium podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. You like My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. You'd like to support My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Well, you can for as little as $2 a month. Plus, you'll get more, more episodes. You'll get archived episodes on this feed. And then also, there's an archive building on the premium podcast. Since we first started doing premium podcasts, in fall 2016. So that's building as well. You get all of that as little as $2 a month. Go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com to sign up.